BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, great white sharks can produce about 100,000 new teeth throughout their lifetime. For humans, it's closer to a mere 50 and most of those have to last from childhood. Looking back half a billion years, though, the ancestors of sharks and humans had no teeth in their mouths at all, nor jaws. They were armoured fish sucking in their food. At some point, either their armoured scales seeded teeth or their taste buds did. And if we knew more about that and why sharks can regenerate their teeth, then we might learn how to grow new teeth ourselves in our later lives. With me to discuss the evolution of teeth are Phil Donoghue, Professor of Paleobiology at the University of Bristol, Zarina Johansson, Merit Researcher in the Department of Earth Sciences at the Natural History Museum, and Gareth Fraser, Assistant Professor in Biology at the University of Florida. Gareth Fraser, can you tell us what is a tooth? Is there an agreed definition? Uh, there, there is a s- sort of agreed definition, um, and it's, it's a simple one, I think. Um, so a tooth itself is a highly mineralized unit within the mouth. Um, it's hypermineralized in terms of the enamel that co- coats the tooth. Um, it's uh, underlying the enamel. It has a dentine uh, block, uh, which is surrounded by a core pulp cavity, uh, and the pulp really contains the nerves and the blood supply uh, that's important during development. Uh, there's a fourth tissue that's involved in the attachment of that of that tooth. Um, it's a we call it a bone of attachment if we're thinking about fishes, uh, but in, in mammals it's a cementum, uh, which is that sort of uh, structure that, that sits between the tooth and the jaw itself, or the bone of the jaw. Um, so it sounds like a very simple structure with four different layers, um, but in actual fact it's a very complex um, What makes structure. it complex? Um, it's complex in, the, in, in, in terms of the development of the unit, um, Although the, 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 there are two main cell types that go towards making the tooth, uh, those cell types uh, differentiate into many different cells uh, in order to secrete some of the hard tissues or the minerals that become hard tissues in the tooth. Um, but there are some 400 or so genes that are involved in the actual production of that tooth um, and many more around the su- supporting tissues of the tooth itself. So it's actually a very complicated sort of concert of, of interactions between genes, cells and tissues that, that go towards making the tooth. In terms of the other organs in the body, is it one of the more complicated? No, not at all. Um, but it's it's it, it, this is a really good question because actually the tooth is seen as a sort of a, a model organ um, because actually a lot of the genes that are involved in making a tooth are also involved in making lots of different organs within the body, whether it's the brain, the eye or the liver uh, or other um, elements of the, of the skeleton. Um, so lots of these genes are sort of turned on in lots of different parts of the body. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not the most complicated, but it's, yeah, it's definitely not the simplest. You are interested, I might say, from reading your notes, obsessed by sharks. Uh, in what way are sharks' teeth uh, singular? Uh, so sharks are an incredibly important group of organisms. Um, um, for me, they're important because they contain a number of characters that are quite uh, interesting for me as an evolutionary biologist. Not only do they have teeth in their mouth, but they also have teeth in their skin. Um, and so we're really trying to sort of figure out what it is about sharks that sort of allows them to develop these strange tooth-like structures. But one of the most important things about sharks for me is that the teeth in the mouth of sharks and, and, and all fishes actually are almost identical, I mean almost identical to the teeth that we have. Um, and the genes that make those teeth are almost equivalent across the board. So we're looking at a unit um, 
a tooth within a shark that's incredibly conserved in the way it's made, which is great news for us because that means we can learn a lot about sharks and how they make their teeth. And at some point, that information can be useful for humans and human health. You're talking about skin. In what way are teeth on the skins like the teeth in the mouths? Uh, uh, so structurally, they're almost almost equivalent. Um, so the, we call them skin teeth, um, but they're not true teeth because true teeth are sort of defined by the location within the mouth. Um, but in the skin, um, they're still made from enamel or enamel-like covering, uh, uh, covering a, a core of dentine um, surrounded by a pulp cavity. So essentially, structurally, they're the same thing. So, you know, why sharks make them in the skin is a really good question. Um, and this sort of lends itself to the evolution of these structures and the origins of these structures. So um, we can answer some questions about the origins of teeth looking at sharks. So did teeth evolve in the skin of some of these ancient fishes, or do they evolve in the mouth, uh, like the teeth in our mouths? Why the frequency, this incredible frequency, and then the numbers involved in the number of teeth they have through that, throughout their lifetime? Uh, yeah, a great question. So we don't, re- we don't really know. I mean, so um, there are lots of sort of guesses um, and, and, and sort of ideas about why the sharks make so many teeth. Uh, it, it, it absolutely played in uh, to the idea that they have now become incredible predators, apex predators, and the fact that they can renew their teeth in some species every two weeks. Um, that... That means that they're always active and always predatory. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the amount of teeth they produce is quite startling. Uh, and so you did mention the, the opening of the show that uh, great whites can potentially make up to 100,000 teeth in its lifetime. And we think that's actually quite a sort of common standpoint in sharks, uh, that they can make, you know, between 50 and 100,000 teeth in a lifetime, which is incredible, really. And the rate at which they make those teeth uh, is pretty impressive, too. So every, every, every 10 days to two weeks, some species make a new set of teeth. Um, but, yeah, why they do that is a great question. And so that's something that we're sort of looking at in terms of what, what it is about the genes that enables them to turn that system to make a rapid uh, development of these new teeth. Thank you. Zarina Johansson, why, can you tell us about the fossils mm-hmm. of fish and why are they relevant to the study of teeth? Well, Gareth hinted at, uh, at that answer when he was um, talking about uh, we're interested in the evolution of teeth and evolution in, of, of scales in, in the skin. But uh, fossils are important because they tell us about the evolutionary history of animals, like sharks and like a variety of other animals. So when you're talking about teeth and the evolution of jaws, we need to be thinking about a group of animals known as the vertebrates. So they have a backbone, like we all do, for example. And the history of vertebrates goes back, I think, as you said, you know, close to 500 million years. And so if we think about... Uh, the vertebrates we have, we can separate them into jawed vertebrates, which are normally the um, vertebrates that have teeth, and the jawless vertebrates. So jawless vertebrates today include like the lampreys and the hagfish, but there's a whole range of fossil jawless vertebrates as well. So one of the things we're interested in is investigating whether some of these jawless vertebrates may have had any type of precursors to teeth that we see in jawed vertebrates. And also, um, because we are able to look at fossils and look at the evolution of jaws and teeth, we're able to um, see whether jaws evolved first and then teeth later. Because you might think that in terms of uh, an evolutionary um, advantage for vertebrates, it might be, well, again, advantageous to evolve jaws at the same time as teeth. But in fact, um, if we look at a group of jawed vertebrates known as the placoderms, it looks like their jaws evolved first and then teeth evolved later. Are teeth particularly prominent in fossil remains? Yes, absolutely. So normally what fossilizes um, 
in animals are the hard tissues. So bone, for example, is mineralized. It's a mineralized part of the skeleton. Sharks um, mineralize their skeletons in slightly different ways. But teeth and scales, as Gareth was saying, are covered in this hard tissue called enamel or enameloid, and scales as well. Um, and also because sharks produce teeth through their lifetime. They're incredibly rich in the fossil record. They're preserved very well. So a lot of our early history of sharks is known primarily from teeth and, and from scales. Are teeth always found with jaws uh, in no. the fossil record? No, that, they don't actually. Um, so again, what we know from placoderms, which is this um, unusual group of fossil vertebrates, a fossil fish, um, is that the what we think of as the most primitive jawed vertebrates, these placoderms, have jaws, but they are bare. They don't appear to have structures that are teeth in the same way, well, true teeth, in the same way that uh, we have teeth in sharks and other bony fishes. So looking at these placoderms, uh, we see jaws first, and teeth seem to have evolved in the mouth later. Phil Donahue, how do teeth develop from the early stages? So... Uh Initially, the, the earliest vertebrates that have teeth are the, the placoderms, and they just have um, structures, cone-like structures, which are comprised almost exclusively of dentine with uh, bone cells that bind them onto a, a bony jaw surface. And then in more advanced vertebrates, uh, like sharks uh, and uh, some early bony fishes, uh, they have... Um, a, mineral, a hypermineralized layer called enameloid, which is like enamel, which coats the upper surface and is a more wear-resistant uh, tissue. And then later within vertebrate evolution, we have a structure more like that resembles more our own teeth that has a, a cap of true enamel that encloses the tooth itself. Can you look back more than 500 million years ago and tell us about the world without teeth? So w within vertebrates, at least, uh, a world without teeth would have been uh, jawless vertebrates, which had an extensively developed mineralized skeleton in the form of a body armor, which has these tooth-like structures coating its outer surface. Uh, but they didn't appear to have had teeth inside their mouths, and indeed they didn't have jaws. They made a living simply by slurping mud and trying to find nutrients within that mud. Can you... Um when teeth appeared hundreds of millions of years ago, um, was this related to fish scales, which have been mentioned, but could you develop that a bit? OK, so within the fossil record, and if we, we put the fossils and the living species within to a, a genealogy of life, uh, what we can see is that the most primitive vertebrates that have tooth-like structures, those tooth-like structures only occur in the form of an external body armour. There are, there are no tooth-like structures inside the mouth. It's only when we have... Uh, true jaws that we have uh, structures that Gareth, according to his definition, would accept as true teeth. But there are some, some other dead fish in between that have tooth-like structures associated with their pharynx, fossil groups, but they didn't have jaws. What those uh, tooth-like uh, structures were doing, nobody really knows. Is there any, have you any idea what provoked or promoted the development of teeth? Well, I, I think once you have jaws, you know, if you want to capture prey... and, and So jaws came before teeth? Well, jaws and teeth seem to have come at more or less the same time. Are you implied? Yes, Within evolutionary okay. history. And so uh, the jaws without teeth aren't particularly useful necessarily because, you know, the, the primitive function for teeth could simply be retaining prey that's been captured by the jaws and preventing it from being released. So how did you, have you any idea how jaws and teeth came into existence and why? 
so I, I would argue that you know uh, that effectively teeth evolve first. They are modifications of the developmental units that make up scales, and that they were co-opted to performing a tooth function once jaws first evolved. But where jaws came, how jaws came about, I don't think anybody really knows. But have you any guess as to why the scales turn into teeth? I mean, you must be one of the people best um, best able to make an educated guess. Well, so scales and teeth develop in, in much the same way. I see. Uh, and the traditional hypothesis is that scales which were on the outside of the mouth once jaws first evolved were co-opted to performing a, a tooth function. They, they were there and they were adapted to retain prey. So teeth come from scales. That's the outside-inside theory, isn't it? Yeah, the outside-in is the traditional hypothesis that's as old as evolutionary theory itself. But, Gareth, isn't there an inside-outside theory? There is. <laughs> it's uh, like so the eggs, isn't it? Yeah. The... So there is an inside-out theory, and that's actually a little misleading in terms of the way it was, it was, the term was coined or the, the name was coined. But, um, so what they... What, so, uh, so two, uh... we've, heard, we've heard Phil's theory. Could you just <laughs> give us your opinion? Right, so um, it was actually my PhD advi- advisor, Moya Smith, uh, and a colleague of hers, Mike Coates, who's at Chicago, uh, came up with this idea that Teeth may have evolved in the in the in the pharynx of these jawless fishes, um, and um, we know that they did possess denticles, as Phil said, within the pharynx. Um, we just don't really know what the sort of status of those denticles were and how they may have transitioned into teeth if they did. So the theory actually came from a, a group of fossils called thelodonts uh, that actually had these sort of connected denticles um, that seemed to show a whorl, a, a, almost like a developmental series of teeth, like you might have in the in the jaws of sharks, but in the back of the pharynx of these jawless fishes. Um, and so it's these sort of fossils that that that, that gave um, both Moya Smith and uh, Mike Coates the idea that possibly teeth may have evolved in these very early vertebrates in the pharynx and not in the skin. And so this this then sort of um, developed this debate, which is you know which came first, teeth in the mouth or the or the oropharynx, which is the sort of the mouth and the the, the, the sort of the internal. Uh, uh, cavity where the gills are or in the skin um, and so the traditional theory like phil said is is that s- scales evolved first or you know these scale-like structures evolved and then they sort of translocated or at least the cells that were competent to make those scales translocated into the mouth um timed perfectly well with the evolution of jaws to become teeth um, any, sorry oh, sorry After yeah. you finish, um and so yeah um uh, and sort of translocated into teeth, whereas the inside-out theory actually doesn't really make any real connection between the teeth and the oropharynx and the skin. Um, it, it, it talks about these two structures as a very separate developmental entity. So teeth may have evolved inside the cavity and just worked their way more sort of anteriorly as jaws evolved, but they're very separate from the skin themselves. Zarina, can you arbitrate or give us your view between these two? Yes, uh, well I've been a very close colleague of Moya's for for quite some time and um, so yes, the group that um, Gareth referred to, the the thelodonts is where you do find these tooth whorls in the gill arches in the pharyngeal region in the pharynx and so it looked like excuse me, that these were, they had a pattern for the addition of these teeth in this jawless vertebrate group. And there was another group um, called the conodonts, which this was work that Moy had done a few years ago, and Phil as well. But uh, it looks like they had similar types of tissues in their um, dental apparatus uh, that were comparable to what we see in teeth. But, I'll get to that in a second, Phil. (laughs) 
But these uh, conodont um, apparatuses were located in the same region, in, associated with the gill arches behind the mouth. And they were organized in uh, a way that looked like they were opposing feeding structures. So again, it appeared that conodonts, which were very primitive jawless vertebrates, fossils, had again some type of patterning that might have been transposed into the mouth to be related to teeth. But Phil's group um, had shown, or has shown, that these conodonts, in fact, are quite derived within the group, and the thelodonts as well. So we might have two instances of this patterning uh, of, these, of, these, of this apparatus and of this whorl within quite different groups, but they're so far separated and quite separated from the jawed vertebrates that they may, in fact, have not much to do with the evolution of teeth at all. Do you want to take that up, Phil? Uh, yeah, so that I, I think Zarina has captured it quite well. So it, it appears uh, on the balance of evidence that conodonts and thelodonts have independently, convergently evolved tooth-like structures, which I think you know says something about the 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 evolutionary potential of tooth-like structures evolving, extending the competence to produce teeth, extending from the outside of the body into the into the the pharynx and into the mouth. To perform tooth-like functions. So you're back on the outside-inside theory. Yes. <laughs> I think you've always been. That's, yeah, that, that's, that's where I've always been, <laughs> so I'm afraid. <laughs> well, to stay with you, Phil, um, why would some vertebrates regenerate their teeth and others not? Uh, so most vertebrates, one way or another, do regenerate their teeth because, you know, teeth are basically tools that are used in food processing. And once they've worn out then, you know, it's a bit limiting. You can't feed and maybe you won't live long enough to breed and you won't pass on your your inability to regenerate teeth onto future <laughs> generations. But lots of vertebrates have solved it in different ways. Some of them simply carry on growing the same tooth to keep a pace with wear at the surface. Such as? Uh, so rabbits, for instance, and uh, primitive shark-like uh, uh, organisms like chimeroids and lungfish as well do all do the, the same thing. Rabbits have one. T- Can you just go a bit? So rabbit incisors, rabbit incisors, and, uh, and some of their molars. They just continually grow them from the base. They never stop developing, and so the the teeth themselves wear down very very quickly. I mean, horse teeth do much the same as well. And they just continually grow. They continually extend to keep a pace with wear. And then there are other groups which uh, reinforce their teeth once they get worn down. They they uh, they develop hypermineralized tissues, wear-resistant tissues uh, within the tooth structure itself. And then there are others that replace worn-out teeth but don't shed the worn tooth. And then others that shed that tooth and replace it with a, a preformed uh, functional tooth. Is there any pattern to this? So that latter pattern of replacement, shedding and replacement, that's the most derived, the most, if you like, advanced uh, mode of, of replacement within vertebrate evolution. So getting to, trying to get to the root of this, if you'd like to choose it, um, what do we know about the genes that make up the... Um, are they, the genes that make up these teeth, are they exclusive to teeth? And what's going on? Uh, so the, the genes that actually sort of are involved in the development and regeneration of teeth, they're not exclusive to teeth. Uh, there are some proteins that are specific to the laying down of the mineral um, enamel, for example. Uh, during secretion of enamel, there are a number of proteins that are involved which are sort of seemingly specific to that function. But during the development of teeth and regeneration of, t- regeneration of teeth, uh, the genes themselves are actually well used throughout the body during embryogenesis. Um, so the, the, there is no tooth gene 
per se. Uh, they're just a sort of a, a, a collection of genes that we call a gene network that function together in order to make a tooth. And it's the sort of the, 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 the interaction of those genes that's quite specific to teeth. What else do they make, these uh, genes? These genes, well, so, so the term is pleiotropy, right? So these genes uh, have functions in, in many different um, organs around the body, um, even, even sort of organising the axis of the body as well. So uh, lots of these genes are involved in many, many different developmental processes. Um, and so it's just, it seems to be that the, the right combination of genes that are, are key or essential to the, to the production of a tooth. Uh, but we don't know why that is. Um, we, I we mean, know it is, but not why it is. Yeah, I think that's 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 what the sort of the research that at least I'm doing uh, is sort of focused on. It try try to understand what it is about that sort of core network of genes that sort of offers uh, something different to allow the formation of teeth. So actually, what we're doing right now is um, we're looking at sort of understanding all of the genes that are expressed during this process, not only of the developing tooth, but also the regenerative nature of the the the, the cells that make make new teeth. Serena, do you want to come in? Well, I was just going to say one of the important differences between teeth and scales in the skin is that teeth can regenerate. So <coughs> that's an important thing that you're investigating, Gareth, at mm. the moment. It is, yeah. And so the, 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 the term regeneration is quite interesting um, because the skin is regenerative. So if you cut yourself, the skin will grow back. And that's the true sort of classic definition of regeneration. Um, and so in sharks, if you cut their skin or you take a plug of, of tissue uh, out of their skin, they'll grow the skin back relati relatively quickly. Um, and then they'll also regrow those denticles, these skin teeth back as well. Um, so there is a regenerative capacity that is sort of inbuilt within the skin, but teeth do it slightly differently, right? So teeth have this sort of autonomous uh, sort of cycle of, of regeneration where every every one tooth is followed by a whole series of, of teeth sort of lining weight. And there's a little st stem cell niche at the end of that battery of teeth that seems to be maintained and it continues to make teeth over and over again. But, oh, sorry, I was just going to interrupt. But, but, but one of the important things about this regeneration or in the scales, is it actually regeneration because new scales will form, but they're def they are deformed. They don't develop right. the similar type of scales. So it is very different from what happens with teeth. Mm -hmm. Can I say with you, Zerina, mm -hmm. what difference would it have made to the early vertebrates when they discovered they had teeth? Well, again, uh, as a, an evolutionary advantage, teeth are, are, are very good um, because you can bite things, you can tear flesh, and then you can also break it down so that it's, um, it's processed and digested more quickly um, and you get the nutrients from it um, much more quickly as well. But when the jaw vertebrates first evolved, there seemed to be several features that evolved at that one particular time. So you get jaws and teeth. You get also in placoderms, you get um, the evolution of a movable head on the body armor, so a neck effectively. And then you get two sets of fins. So it looks like that uh, jawed vertebrates, when they first evolved, became more active in terms of their locomotion, which would go together nicely with them also being able to have jaws and teeth to, to attack and, and break down their food. In that sense, did it give them, let's call it, a sort of supremacy? Uh, Certainly an, an advantage in evolutionary terms, I, yeah. I would say. How yes. much of an advantage? Well, they're now the most successful group of vertebrates um, living today. So, again, the jawless vertebrates that are alive today just include um, lampreys and hagfish, which are only known from, from a very few number of species. So it's teeth that made the difference? One of the differences, sure. What's the other? 
Well, again, just this ability to, um, well, locomotion, to be able to swim more quickly, to be able to capture prey. Uh, moving your head on the rest of your body is also um, very advantageous because if you think about uh, a fish raising its head and dropping its jaw at the same time, it creates a very big mouth so it can eat bigger prey items, but also as the jaws dropped, it creates suction as well. So that whole mechanism is very, again, advantageous, functional for bringing food into the mouth of, of these jawed vertebrates. Phil, what about the animals that didn't get teeth, the non-vertebrates? What happens to them? So lots of invertebrates also have teeth or tooth-like structures. They, they've evolved independently, uh, but they're, they're, in terms of their shape and their function, they're much the same even though they're not supported necessarily by jaws. So close relatives of vertebrates, things like sea urchins, they have teeth as part of their Aristotle's lantern. And Aristotle's the, lantern? Yeah, so it's a complex jaw apparatus which sits just inside the... Is that in Aristotle's study? Of, and, and, in Aristotle's study, it comes from that? Yes, yeah. So it's a very complex mechanical apparatus for, for scraping away at substrates or, or eating prey. Uh, and, in fact, some of the genes that are involved in the development of, of those so-called teeth are the same. some of the same genes involved in tooth development in vertebrates as well. But there are a whole host of different groups of invertebrates, like the penis worms, the horsehair worms, the roundworms, uh, as well as lots of arthropods and acanthocephalans. All of them have tooth-like structures because they all want to grasp prey, which doesn't want to be eaten. When you say tooth-like, does it accord with the definition that we were given at the beginning of the programme? No, they certainly don't have teeth that are made up of the same tissues. They're not made up of enamel or dentine. But in terms of their shape and in terms of their function, they are the same. And that's why they basically look the same. So they can be predators too? Yes. Yes. So why did I say earlier that vertebrates got an advantage? And you all seem to agree. Well, vertebrates did get an advantage, but compared to what? You know, compared to their, their jawless and toothless relatives, yes. which were making a living just by, you know, uh, swimming around in, in slurping mud up, then, I don't know, I think uh, that the life of a jawed and toothed vertebrate is, is a better one. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they knew it at the time. Um, Gareth, um... When so many other animals regenerate teeth in various ways, why are we stuck with a mere two lots? Great question. Um, so in, in mammals, it seems that um, we have reduced the number of teeth that we make because we're, we're more sort of focused, I think, on um, forming teeth in a specific shape for a specific function. So mammals have, have a relatively specialised diet for the most part, um, and their teeth are made... For function, right? So they're made for a specific diet. If you think about cows that chew a cud uh, and they, they sort of like to chew and, and grind grass down, they really need their molars to, to, to work together. This is called occlusion. The, the fact that their molars are shaped perfectly to, to align with each other means that they can actually process that grass down to a cud and actually get all the nutrients out of it. If they didn't have those teeth aligning, then they wouldn't be able to generate the nutrients uh, from the grass. Um, and so, what other variants are there? Oh, many. Well, so, can you give us a few more? Well, just the teeth in our mouth, for example. Uh, we have incisors, we have canines, we have premolars and molars. And they're all very different shapes because they all do slightly different things. So if you think about our incisors, our incisors are really there to sort of grasp the prey, so to take whatever it is we're eating and pass it through to the back of our mouth where it can then be processed um, by our molars, right? So we're omnivorous. Uh, and so our molars are really good at chewing uh, 
plant matter and also uh, chewing meat. Um, but there are some vertebrates, uh, for example, uh, cats that have molars that aren't like ours, that aren't like cows. Uh, they're more blade-like, and they're there to shear and to slice through meat. Uh, and muscle. So, um, so we, we have a huge. I think mammals are incredible in that they have a huge diversity of, of, of dental form, um, and uh, yeah, it's a very specific way. But I think mammals specifically have have targeted occlusion as a really sort of important sort of uh, uh, mechanism. So, if we did replace our teeth multiple times, the chances of our molars misaligning are quite high. And so, some vertebrates wouldn't survive because um, if their molars don't align, then they can't generate the nutrients from their food. Well, I was just thinking that uh, we do have examples in, in sharks that show a similar type of, of differentiation of their, their teeth from the front to the back, and um, that's known as heterodonty. So the Port Jackson shark, for example, is heterodontous, and um, it has more of a grasping dentition at the front of the jaw, but then as you proceed back towards the jaw joint, uh, there's more of a flat, crushing dentition. So... Um, Again, that's maybe not exclusive to mammals. Um, sharks are normally not so heterodont uh, in terms of their dentition, but that does give one example where that happens. I think this is actually interesting because I think there should be a, a, a division between crushing, which is, I think, what you're discussing, mm -hmm. and, and uh, an occlusion that we see in mammals, so yes, the, okay. the actual grinding of, yeah. of, of food. Um, and so in sharks, even though they have these malariform, these flattened uh, back teeth, they're able to crush prey, hard prey like mollusks, for example, uh, and crack open that shell and maybe process that, 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 stuff, that, that food stuff to some extent. Uh, but that's, I think, slightly different from, from true occlusion that we see in mammals, where you have molars that come together perfectly. The shape of those molars are incredibly sort of intricate um, and multicuspid. So the development of those structures are it's 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 quite it's quite complicated. So if if you if you if you replace the teeth that that sharks will replace multiple times during a lifetime, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and we're thinking about those back teeth, they still can perform the function. But if you if you do the same and you try and replace the molars of a cow multiple times, the chances of those misaligning are quite high. So I think that's why mammals don't have really the capacity to regenerate multiple times. And what's interesting about humans is that we, we, we probably need more teeth, right? So our lives are, are getting sort of longer. Um, our diet's getting worse and more acidic. And so, you In know... why is our diet getting worse? Uh, it's becoming very acidic, I think. I think, well, it depends on which group of, of humans we're talking about. But if you're talking about the Western world, I mean, you know, our, our, our diets are, are becoming more salty, more sugary. Um, and so that sort of, that lends itself to an acidic uh, acidic diet. And so that's basically taken away some of the material, material, the minerals within our teeth and creating cavities and, and eventually we lose our teeth. So I think humans would like to have more teeth. I think if we live to 100, uh, which is the way that things are going with medical science, um, by the time we're 40, we could do with another set of teeth, maybe 50. But absolutely, by the time we get into our 60s and 70s, we need new teeth. Um, and so the problem is that our dentition isn't really fit for, fit for purpose in that sense. So we need to figure out a way uh, to make new teeth, like sharks. Phil, how near are we to figuring this out? Well, I, I think there are startup companies already that uh, are trying to to grow teeth on a dish, uh, so that you know, that with the ideal of patients being able to have. Uh, their own cells creating teeth in a dish that can be clinically implanted into their jaws. Yeah, there are several groups also that are, that have some sort of topical gels that you can now sort of, you know, um, 
smooth over your enamel and it helps to try and sort of i guess the idea is that it, it tries to renew the enamel that you already have to try and reinforce the enamel you have so there, there are lots of labs and groups and private companies that are really trying to extend the life of our teeth that we have uh, and then there are lots of other labs and research groups that are trying to figure out ways in which to make new teeth brand new teeth and so the one thing about sharks that really intrigues me is the fact that they can make brand new teeth over and over again do you want to take this up serena well, again, I'm not going to pass it over to Gareth, but, but his work is showing that uh, taste buds in the mouth seem to be very important in tooth, re- tooth development in tooth regeneration. And I, uh, when he first told me about this a few years ago, I, I, I was just really, I didn't really understand how that could be. And it was such an interesting idea that these two sort of uh, what seem to be quite dissimilar structures were related in, in developmental terms. So maybe you can... Go into that a bit more, Gareth. Yeah, so it's, it's, so what's interesting is that we talk, if we talk about the origins of teeth and the evolution of teeth, one of the things that, that uh, I guess as paleontologists or evolutionary biologists we're sort of keen to understand is what was before teeth. What are the structures that came before? And so if you look at these jawless fishes, they're, they're, their mouths are probably lined with taste buds. And taste buds definitely evolved before teeth did. And so one of the things that we've been trying to think about is this link between taste buds in the jaw and how teeth may have taken over that space. And what's intriguing about taste buds is that they're incredibly regenerative, right? So I think in mammals, I think maybe 10% of the cells in a taste bud in mammals is replaced every day. And so they're incredibly regenerative. The same genes are involved in the development of taste buds that they are in teeth. So we're, we're actually starting to think about taste buds as sort of a, almost like a forerunner for, for, for teeth. Um, and so if you think about this inside out or outside in theory, when competence to make teeth made its way into the mouth, it probably interacted with those factors or genes that were involved in regeneration of taste buds. And that then may have allowed teeth to adopt that fate of regeneration. Phil, did teeth appear only once in the, in the, on the evolutionary scale? Uh, well, according to Gareth's definition of a tooth, yes, but but there are many types of teeth also uh, within with within vertebrates. So, uh, Zarina's already mentioned the the jawless vertebrates, the hagfishes and the lampreys, and they actually have tooth-like structures, but they're made exclusively from keratin, so the same tissue that makes up our our fingernails and toenails. Uh, and they are supported by a jaw-like apparatus, but it, it works from side to side rather than top down. And some people have argued that maybe that that is the that foreshadows, you know, the development of a, a, a true tooth. But then there are other more advanced groups like uh, amphibians, so the the tadpoles of, of uh, frogs. They have a, a set of primitive teeth, but again, they're they are composed of keratin. They're not made of dentine and enamel in the way the, the, the teeth are classically thought of. And then there are various extinct groups, like uh, there are some pelagic birds uh, that, that survive for tens of millions of years that couldn't develop teeth because they had a keratinous beak, and that precludes tooth development. So instead, what they did was to develop these huge bony projections that extended through the keratinous beak to perform a, a tooth-like function. There are many lineages that have solved the problem of wanting to retain prey or process food uh, in different ways without simply co-opting the existing tooth. Going forward from 450 million years ago, when did the teeth make a, a, arrive at the point where it made a significant difference to the way that uh, the animal kingdom including mammals, of course, uh, was developing? So I, I think almost instantly. We, we see, if we look at the within the first tens of millions of years of jawed vertebrate evolution, we see a, a great diversity of 
of tooth types, you know, crushing dentitions, shearing dentitions, grasping dentitions, showing that the feeding ecology of uh, jawed vertebrates had dramatically increased from the simple deposit feeding modes of their jawless and toothless uh, ancestors. So it, it really did have a very dramatic effect. And, and as we look at the rest of vertebrate evolution, we just see the emergence of these recurrent themes of, of convergent tooth evolution to perform the same sort of uh, tool functions of, of food processing and food capture. But I was just going to say what I find quite interesting is that, um, again, in the fossil record, if we look at um, the animals that are most closely related to uh, sharks and bony fish, um, some examples from Chinese fossils are showing that, that teeth are in fact absent. And if you go into the fossil history of, of sharks themselves, we see the um, some groups have teeth, but other other ones have lost. So it seems to be, <clears throat> excuse me, quite a patchy patterning um, of whether you have teeth or not, for example, when you're when you're looking at shark evolution. But in the introduction, um, I said something. Uh, like that once the, the teeth got underway, it gave <coughs> those with teeth a supremacy. When did mm-hmm. that, I just would like to know if you have any idea, at about what time did that make itself uh, evident? Well, I think, again, uh, as Phil said, when, when jaws first evolved, we, we do have teeth appearing. But again, just the, the capacity to, to change teeth and change dentitions, um, sometimes perhaps you lose them, sometimes they're modified to be fused in the chimeroids, uh, was a type of uh, shark relatives that Phil mentioned. And it's, I, I just feel it's really interesting for my own research to be looking at how these different types of dentitions um, evolved and, and developed. But uh, again, yes, when you, when you first have jaws and teeth, um, that's when they become important. I, I guess a big changeover was uh, the end of the Devonian period, about 350 million years ago, when this great diversity of armoured jawless vertebrates that didn't have jaws, didn't have teeth, they basically went extinct. And that, that is something that follows the dramatic diversification, both of lineages of jawed vertebrates, but also of feeding ecologies rooted into different dental functions. Did they go extinct because the, those with teeth were, teeth were making them extinct, or was it a coincidence? Uh, I think it's a coincidence because they weren't feeding in the same way. They weren't trying to capture the same prey. They weren't competing for resources in in any way, anything like the same way. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, being a jawed vertebrate was a better deal than being an armoured jawless vertebrate. Gareth, are these things developing developed in the embryo, the modifications they, and such? They are, yeah. Um, so you, you, so yes, so teeth develop in the, in the embryo, uh, but also modifications do occur in the embryo. So if we look at the embryo of fishes, um, the first dentition to develop in fishes may not be the same dentition it has when it emerges as a larva or as an adult. Um, and so one of the things that we're sort of looking at is the change, not only in terms of the evolutionary change of teeth, but the developmental and the continued developmental change of teeth as well. So one of the fish groups that I study are the pufferfish. And pufferfish are really quite incredible because they, they, as embryos, they develop a normal set of teeth like any other fish, these sort of uh, unicuspid conical teeth that lie in the jaws. But their second generation, so this is a result of regeneration there, their second generation teeth uh, start to make a beak much like a bird, right, but made of dentine and enamel. And so what I'm sort of really sort of keen to understand is the diversity of these structures and how they diversify not only um, among groups but within groups uh, during development. So looking at groups like pufferfish and other strange fishes to, to show the transition of teeth between embryonic teeth 
larval teeth and then adult teeth. And it's this process of regeneration that allows them to do something really quite different with their dentition. So pufferfish are only able to make a beak because they regenerate their teeth continuously like a shark. But instead of making brand new teeth every time, they just make these these new bands of dentine, uh, which have a, an enamel cap, uh, and they sort of pack these together and stack them up into a beak. And so they're only able to make these beaks because of this 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 propensity to regenerate their dentition. Zarino, in in your area of research, what is it? What is it you most want to learn about teeth? Um, we've been looking at shark uh, teeth and dentitions now for quite a few years, and we've been looking at various aspects of how sharks organize their teeth along the jaw to get the the very precise patterning that you see uh, in, in in many many sharks. But um, again, in this group known as the chimeroids, they just have a plate-like dentition. But if we look at the fossils of these chimeroids, uh, they have separate, more shark-like teeth. So one thing that we're very interested in now is to learn how you go from this separate tooth-like, sorry, this separate tooth dentition that you have in sharks to being this fused plate-like dentition that you see in these chimeroids. So again, like Gareth, just looking at how uh, teeth change through through evolution. Finally, Phil, what what application would this have? What, what you've been talking about have to human health? So we've already dis- discussed the possibility of growing your own teeth or uh, or using uh, topical substances to try and regenerate uh, tissue layers on teeth. But the other aspect uh, uh, that's of importance with regard to teeth and tooth development is the fact that they serve as fantastic models for organogenesis, for simply organ development. Teeth are, at the same time, perhaps the simplest and the most complex of all organ systems. They're very simple because they develop simply as a consequence of bending a sheet of, of, of cells. And the shape of the tooth is, depend- is dependent on the way in which that sheet of cells is deformed. But they're also amongst the most complex of organs because they result from an interaction between two different primary embryological tissue layers. One is the the oral epithelium, and then the other is a a migratory population of stem-like cells that comes basically from the midbrain and migrates to the the position where teeth will develop. That's quite a, a complex system of getting all the right cells in the right place at the right time and getting them to communicate biochemically to get the, the, the tissue layers to deform, to make a, a tooth shape, and, and for all the cells to develop into the tissues that make a tooth. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Phil Donoghue, Zarina Johansson and Gareth Fraser. Next week, it's A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of Shakespeare's most popular plays. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We are looking at taste buds in a bit more detail. Uh, we're now starting to sequence cells that are more specifically taste-like uh, versus those that are more tooth-like to see if mm-hmm. there's any real comparisons between those cells. Um, but, yeah, looking at rays, um, potentially at some point looking at chimeras too. I mean, Oh, yeah, it, we should talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> we'll yeah. talk about that now. Yeah, well, again, well, as I was saying, that in the fossil record we have... Um, relatives of these chimeroids that have separate shark-like teeth. They're added in the same way, they have similar shapes, but then they also show um, within their dentition some degree of fusion. So what we're interested in at the moment is how does this fusion occur and how does that relate to the, again, chunky dental plate that you see in modern chimeroids? Is there some sort of evolutionary and developmental process. So I would be interested to know mm-hmm. if you know anything, and maybe also you, Phil, about how teeth may fuse. 
think of Helotus, for example, that's what yeah. I'm talking about. So we're looking at Helotus dentitions, and along the jaw, there are separate teeth, but at certain points in the jaw, it's pleuroplax, it's this fused structure that you might know about. Yeah. But it, it's the same species, and we're just interested in how you get that transition from separate teeth to mm. yeah. fused teeth. And that's the trans- transition we see within early shark evolution, shark right? So, they, mm-hmm. so modern sharks have these families of teeth where all the teeth are aligned and the, they all develop from the same pocket within the dental lamina. They're all basically the descendants of the same lineage mm-hmm. uh, of cells. Uh, but they're essentially separate from each other so that once they're, when, once they're done, they can be shed. The latest, the oldest tooth can be shed. But the ancestors didn't do that. Mm. The, the teeth were all fused together. Yep. They had a bony, curved plate... And uh, these poor early sharks would have had, you know, a, a face full of rotten teeth, basically, <laughs> hanging out sort the of outside of their, their mouth. Yeah. yeah. So is that a precursor then to fusion, to just retain the teeth and then fuse them later into more of a plate-like structure? Great question. <laughs> I mean, there's the practical problem here, and that mm. is that you can't always get embryos of these no. funky fish. No. Right? And so, you know, I, I study a species of shark because you can get hold of those embryos relatively easily. They're not protected. They're not threatened in any way. So they're easy to get hold of. Um, but some of these species, like the chimeroids, these are hard embryos to get hold they of. Are. They are. You can lay... get them off of Australia. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you can get them in some places like Australia. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that these, these, these fish, or these sharks, uh, shark relatives, they lay these eggs very deep in the water. So they're very hard to come across, the embryos. And even if you do come across them, you may come across a handful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, yes. the, and the sorts of numbers of yeah. embryos that we study mean that we can sort of understand processes across developmental times. So you need quite a few embryos to do this study. So I think we're limited um, by the number of embryos we can get hold of. Yeah. And we're definitely limited in terms of the number of species we can study because most of the species that we'd like to study, we can't find embryos for. Some of these fishes that I study, some of these puffer fish, uh, they're sort of open ocean breeders so that the you know the males and females uh will basically lay their eggs and milt in the open ocean they'll fertilize those uh th- those gametes in open ocean and then those embryos will just go and float around the ocean so it's really difficult to go and get a bunch of embryos right so this is the problem this is the sort of limitation to the, to the developmental studies that we're doing we need to be able to find embryos to do the study if there's a great morphology of a specific species that's wonderful but you may not be able to get the embryos to do that study so the thing I'd like to do, or get someone to do more more likely, would be to, to learn not more about tooth development, but more about scale development. So one of the, the key aspects of, of tooth development is this, this migratory population of cells. The neural crest is intimately involved in, in the differentiation of all the component tissues and the, the interplay in terms of its biochemical conversation with the, the oral epithelium. But we don't really know whether that's the case with scale development. You know, in terms of the morphology mm-hmm. of the development, the shape of the development of scales, it, it looks exactly the same. Uh, as in teeth and indeed most of the genes that are involved they're all expressed in more or less the same way in tooth and scale development in in beasties like sharks but we don't know for sure whether neural crest has this role within scale development and and if it doesn't then that could really be an important arbiter in this debate about where teeth came from and whether inside out or outside in is correct so the one thing i would add to this inside out outside in debate is that there, there have been a few studies recently that have shown that actually the the endoderm which lines the mouth mm-hmm. and the sort of the posterior cavity of the of the, the mouth and pharynx and also bleeds into the foregut uh, this is all endoderm and actually endoderm is the tissue that out pockets rather than ectoderm in pocketing and so if we if we really think about the sort of developmental processes that are occurring it's more likely the endoderm is making its way out into the ectoderm than it is the end of the ectoderm moving into the mouth, into the mouth. Yeah. 
Oh, so to make matters worse, I, I should add, just for completeness, that Gareth himself has come up with an inside and outside hypothesis. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to see him explain it. <laughs> There's your chance. OK, well, I, I can explain it. I mean, so the idea that scales and, and uh, so scales in the skin or teeth in the skin versus teeth in the mouth are very separate entities. And they may have evolved around about the same sorts of time. <laughs> Um, but it's really so. So my sort of idea is that it it there really really isn't an answer to whether whether one came before the other. That they both appeared because of this interaction between the cells and the gene networks. And so if you have the right cell type and the right gene network, you can make a tooth in the skin or the mouth. It doesn't really matter where. And so th- then it's sort of you know the, the question is does it really matter what came first? But this has been going on for 150 years. You can't just solve it like that. This argument has been very important. I think, I mean, I think the thing all that, the textbooks yeah. have to be. Really well, so annoyingly, one of our last papers, we sort of we support the outside in theory because yeah. we're talking about the competence of the ectodermal cells that make these skin teeth moving their way into the mouth and collaborating with the taste buds to make these regenerative teeth. And so, we, so in my mind, that sort of works actually. And so, I'm sort of I'm right on the fence. I think right now, I like the endoderm being the sort of the the, the, the main component of, of true teeth, um, but I also like the idea of the, the, these competent cells making their way into the mouth, interacting with taste buds to allow this 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 new wave of regeneration. Who's the producer? Does anyone want to your coffee? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm all right, actually. Yeah. Thank you. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Oi, you. While you're here, have a listen to this, would you? Forest. An environmental thriller for BBC Sounds. I'm so sorry. Meet Pan. Oh, I did. She lives a few centuries from now, after a data crash that wiped out most records of life. Shonk. So when she finds an old recording of a rainforest, she has no idea what it is. Forest 404. Nine-part thriller, nine-part talk, nine-part soundscape. Starring Pearl Mackey, Tanya Moody and Pippa Hayward, with theme music by Bonobo. Subscribe now on BBC Sounds. Subscribe now.